So Arpin, we're going to start with the big news of the day. It's important. Big news of the... Is there big news? Did yeah, I miss something? Is. Yeah. Lucas Condotta's been, uh, been sent back to the Laval. Uh, for crying out loud. <laughs> you got me all... I was yeah. like, geez, what did I, how did I miss something? But uh, yeah. No, yeah. you didn't miss well, it. You didn't miss it, just in case. All right. But that's so good. It gives a timeline for our listeners as to when we're recording. This is Friday, February 9th. Just after 2 p.m., Lucas Condota has been sent to the Laval Rocket, which means Alex Newhook is set to make his return to the Canadiens lineup over Super Bowl weekend. The matinee, traditional matinee doubleheader starting with Dallas Stars against Saturday. Um, obviously, good news for the Canadiens. Rare good news of a player actually returning to the lineup. Yeah. Um, Alex Newhook practiced with the first power play on Friday in Brossard. Uh, took the bumper spot that Sean Monaghan once occupied. Um, made the first power play look a lot more legitimate. We won't talk about the second power play unit, but the, the first power play oh unit <laughs> looks like an actual uh, potentially dangerous NHL power play unit again. Um, and provides a little little more oomph, a little pop lower down in the lineup and will be returning despite, despite what we said in the last episode. Clearly, Martin St. Louis is not watching the podcast or listening to the podcast um, he'll be playing him at center. And uh, wait a minute, it, not wait a minute. He might not listen to you, but he certainly listened to me because I told you <laughs> that Newark would play center, that his long-term position would be on the wing. But yeah. I suspected that he would be slotted at center because that's where they would think that he's the most needed and right I, now. I and didn't that's disagree exactly with you. His point. I said what I would do. I said what yes. I would do is I would play him on the wing, and so. Clearly, Martin does not agree with me. No. But he'll be well, back that in be Saturday. First. That would not be first at all. <laughs> that would be about the hundredth time. And we'll be talking a lot about Martin St. Louis today because it's his second anniversary as coach of the Canadians. Yes. Uh, but before that, we wanted to talk about Alex Newhook a little bit. And, you know, and, and I think his point was fair, you know, that, yes, we see him as a wing down the road, but right now we need him at center. And frankly, after the faceoff, it doesn't really matter if you're playing center or wing. And I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Like it's, it's especially if the line we saw at practice on Friday holds true with Raphael Harvey, Pinard and Yul Armia. Um, those are two guys who either of them could play down low if they're back first on defense. And, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that actually happen. Them taking on more of the defensive responsibilities that a center has to take care of. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it provides a little pop, you know, like that game in yeah. the game in Washington first line looked great after that kind of sad face, you know, the rest of the lineup was a little sad face. Uh, Alex Newhook makes it a little less sad face. Yeah. I think it's a great opportunity for him. He was happy in the first place to come to Montreal arrive uh, in an organization that would give him like a fresh start and a new opportunity to showcase himself. But I feel like with Sean Monahan being gone, he's got even more runway to really mm. establish himself, perhaps in the top, top six uh, over the long run from, from Montreal. But I think that even though it's in the context of a team that might be losing this fair share of games until the end of the season, at least from an individual standpoint, he comes back with ample opportunity where whether it's on the power play, as you mentioned before, or simply just time on ice, he's going to be given a lot of opportunity. And for a guy who, who had started to find his rhythm 
with the Canadians before his injury had started to score. Uh, he was on a nice little run there uh, with goals, uh, with the five on five goals. I think that it's going to be, uh, it, it's going to be a nice experiment for him. Granted, mm. over the long term, it's he's probably more a winger in Montreal than a center, but he's going to have the opportunity to carry the puck into the other zone and. With guys like Harvey Pina and Armia, we'll see how long it lasts. But I could see that if if they they're able to bring the puck in the other end, they could do some cycling business, the three of them together there, and, yeah. and have extended ozone time. Yeah. And and yeah, I agree. And and you know, I mean, when he got it was he wasn't lighting the world on fire before he got hurt, but I felt aside from the numbers, you know, he had four goals in his last seven games, um, plus two assists, so six points in seven games. Um, pretty good production. But I just feel like his comfort level, as you mentioned, um, hit a level where he felt like he had found a place. You know, he'd found a place in, in this lineup, on this team, under this coach. Um, overall play was really improving. So, you know, for his sake, hopefully he can pick up where he left off. Um, and for the Canadian's sake. But it's, it's, it's a welcome return. And I think the timing of it, is something we wanted to touch on is, is, you know, we're, we're looking at a, he's going to be back on February 10th, which is essentially when the Canadian said he'd be back. Yeah. We're not used to this. This is not, this is unusual. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting because today New York said, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't come back too quickly. It's a high ankle sprain. Mm -hmm. Guys have tried to come back early and they re-injured it in the past. We've seen that. Uh, we've seen guys taking forever to, to try to, um, you know, to try to, uh, uh, to, to, to fix it. But in this case, what makes it interesting is that there's been so, such a big ordeal made out of the, uh, the, the medical staff in Montreal, the therapists mm -hmm. and whatnot, and the change, uh, that have been made in the off season in that regard. And, The Canadians still had injuries this season. And obviously, some people said, oh, well, you see, it was not Graham Reinsman's fault that the uh, all those injuries, proof is in the pudding because there are still some Montreal Canadiens injured, uh, you know, game after game or whatever. Uh, but the truth is, it's not necessarily the fact the injuries will happen. But I think oh. that the, the key change here is twofold. One, they made sure that the player would not come back too soon. And B, the, the timeline that had been established precisely when he got hurt, they were right on target. So he mm -hmm. comes back really in the, shortly after it was meant to be six to eight weeks. We're, I don't think that we've finished the sixth week yet. So it's, it's pretty good. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that the fact that team, the, the players can be told something. And they, they can trust that they're being told because that timeline is real. It's, mm -hmm. it, it certainly helps the, the confidence, uh, the, the establishment of the connection, the confident connection between the medical staff and the players. They, they know that they can trust them because it, it has hold true for Newhook. And earlier in the season, I believe it, it had been, it had gone pretty much the same way with David Salah. Yeah. And yeah, just to be clear, Newhook, Newark went out on November 30th. So we're looking at, you know, close to eight weeks, which is, again, it's still right on target, but uh, 
Okay, yeah, it's, cool. it's more. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so it, it's more. It's more eight than six, but still, okay. it's 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 what they said it would be. Well, I believe the timeline was actually eight to ten weeks that they gave because a high ankle sprain is uh, a pretty severe injury that that can actually be, you know, I think in some cases you'd almost rather break the ankle than have a high ankle sprain. It's like, it's no, seriously, in terms of, in terms of rehab and recovery, it's, 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 it's less complicated to come back from a broken ankle than it is a high ankle sprain. So for them hey, to hit it on the nose, more or less. Not even that, man. We were both in the wrong. It was 10 to 12. He's coming back 12. early. Well, he's, it's, he's right around 10. It's actually, it's, it's, it's more or less November 30th to yeah. February 10th. It's, more or less ten weeks, a little, a little less than ten weeks. So, so they hit it. You know, it's uh, it's it's and and you're right with Savard. I think Jordan Harris was kind of similar, although his timeline wasn't really quite as uh, that was more of an uh, an indefinite timeline that they gave. So we can't can't know if they hit it or not. And Dvorak, obviously, the timeline was very precise. It had nothing to do with his injury, um, and he came back right on time <laughs> for, for other, for various reasons. But um, Harvey Pernard was another one that we didn't really get. I don't think a very firm timeline on, I could be wrong on that, but, um, but yeah, I agree that this is, you know, it's, it's the recovery uh, from those injuries, the management of those injuries, um, whether or not players were allowed to play injured uh, remains to be seen if Monaghan was playing injured or not. Uh, just with the frequency of his treatment days before getting traded. Uh, but he clearly, the Jets clearly felt satisfied with his medical report, which they reviewed prior to the trade. Yeah. Um, the other one was Tanner Pearson, which I think kind of hit, hit that target pretty, pretty, pretty bang on as well. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of silly to say, oh, players are still getting injured you know, what, what's going on with this medical staff? No, it's, this is the side of the injury that you have to evaluate the medical staff on is, is when are players coming back? And so, yeah, so uh, clearly after our little, uh, confusion with mathematics a few weeks ago, I think that we should take, <laughs> take a look at the calendars and understand how they work properly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> how many weeks, how many weeks are in a month is yeah, something worth it. reviewing, you know, but anyhow, it's, um, so eager to see how Alex Newhook does uh, this weekend, um, considering you know just how 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 much how much of a need there is at the forward position. Um, and aside from that, you know, let's see how the top line if they can if they can continue what happened in Washington. Uh, you know, we've seen Uri Slavkovsky the past couple of practices being out there with Dr. Schott prior to practice for significant, you know, 45 minutes at a time doing all sorts of shooting drills. Like it's something that's really sort of been driven into him. Uh, I think getting the results in Washington with this shot obviously provides added motivation. So let's see. And I think a lot of fans would, would note that uh, a lot of our listeners would note that, that, the power play goal Uri Slavkovsky scored came on a pass from Mike Matheson, who seen a lot of chatter on on the Twitter bot on the Twitter box that uh, you know that Mike Matheson refuses to pass to Slavkovsky on the power play. Yeah. Well, it's you know let's see if he's turned a new leaf uh, on that one. 
with with Slavkovsky. And and I think a, a big issue with Slavkovsky earlier in the season was not only that he wasn't shooting, and I think maybe this ha- might have had something to do with Mike Madison not passing it to him, is that when he was in that right circle, if you watched his feet, his feet would be pointed back at Matheson. And they were not he was not setting himself up to shoot prior to getting the pass. He was setting himself up to pass. And which made him very predictable because any defender, whether it's a forward or a defenseman, will see that, will see his feet, and okay, he can't he literally can't shoot with his skates pointing away from the net. Um so the threat to shoot wasn't there, uh, which made passing more complicated because the penalty killers were playing the pass more. So as long as he gets his feet set to shoot and he's ready to do it, whether he does it or not, will affect how the penalty killers play him. Um, but he has to force them to respect that shot. And, and the more he shoots it, the more goals he scores, the more, go- the more those goals wind up on highlight reels, uh, the more players see those goals, um, the more they're going to respect that shot and the more things open up potentially for Cole Caulfield on the other side, which is what we've – you know, been waiting to see from the Canadians power plays. Is there someone there that can get attention away from Cole Caulfield now with Alex Newhook returning, being in the bumper spot, he could potentially be a guy who can do that. But really if Slav can become a major shooting threat from that right circle, then maybe that opens things up for Cole Caulfield pretty significantly and allows him, uh, it allows him some, some time and space to do some things. And I, I really like the, I really like the Cole Caulfield on the goal line kind of experiment that's going on here. And, and, and both him and Suzuki on that, on that one timer side. Um, I feel like the power play kind of turned around when they did that yeah. a little while ago. And it really creates some different interesting looks. But again, that only works if the guy on the opposite side of the ice is a threat. So let's see if that continues for your Slavkovsky. Well, you remember when we sat down with Slavkovsky prior to his draft, we were at the Combine in Buffalo, and he said yeah. how he perceived himself more as a playmaker and a passer than a shooter. And yes. there was last season, even at the beginning of this season, he seems to he seemed to defer a lot to more established NHL guys and, and he looked at passing all the time. But I think, as as you pointed out, the, if he can establish himself more as a dual threat, mm-hmm. uh, it's going to have a f- huge impact both for him and for his line mates too. And I think that even though he's he's more he's got more the mentality of the passer and and he likes to to let his his vision you know, dictate his course. Which he still, he still feels that way just for the record. It's yeah, not yeah, just he, something, it's not something he thought only in the combine. He, I talked to him about that like a month ago and he still, he still feels that way. Exactly. But yeah. at the same time, he, he needs, he needs to make the, the, the other team think about what he's mm-hmm. about to do. And the couple of goals that he scored against Washington, uh, are, are an interesting message that's being sent. Of course, that, that one timer, is is significant but probably the first goal is also something that's even more encouraging because it means i'm i'm trying things with my hands toe dragging it getting on the inside and you know aiming right i think that he that was a magnificent goal and now we've got a slavkovsky who's who's up to seven goals and eight assists in his last 21 games so mm-hmm. 
it's not a point per game, but the, this last bit, 21 games, that level of production is yeah, it's, is, is about as as good as you can hope for a second second uh, year guy playing for a team such as the Montreal Canadiens. Well, not just a second year guy, a 19 year old guy. Um, you know, that's a quarter of a season, and 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 the thing about those numbers is that it's it's so obvious watching over that span of time that the numbers don't tell the whole story in his case. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the things he's doing off the puck, the, the, the recoveries we've talked about it so much, but it remains relevant because he continues doing those things. Justin Washington. I mean, I thought the two best plays he made, aside from the toe drag goal, you know, the two Suzuki goals in the first period, Slavkowski made plays on those that didn't result in points. One was a quick track back, to pressure the puck on the, on the exit for Washington, which led to a bad pass into Nikola uh, Obi-Kubel skates in the neutral zone. Cole Caulfield being in the right position to cut that off, create a disruption and get that turnover and then set up Suzuki with the beautiful saucer pass. But that initial track back, that hard track back by, by Uri Slavkovsky really set the wheels in motion for that goal. And on the second goal, um, You know, he runs a pick on Alex Ovechkin. Ovechkin was furious after the goal and then immediately ties up Joel Edmondson in front to prevent him from getting in the shooting lane as well, which allowed Jack Kai's shot to get through, hit the post, let goes to Suzuki, and he has an open net to shoot at. So little details in his game that continue improving. Um, I mean, just it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to watch and fun to watch if he can keep this going, you know, for the rest of the season. Um, which I think is, I think Slavkowski is like a good proxy to talk about Martin St. Louis, you know, second anniversary as coach, because this is really his, his magnus opus, you know, like this is his, this is his big work of art so far as the transformation in your Slavkowski and the work that he's done with him. And he was asked a question Uh, I believe it was on Thursday, uh, if the organization takes any pride in the fact that they kept him in the NHL, that they didn't send him down, yeah. um, that they decided to work with him at the NHL level. And Martin's answer was no, just a flat no. <laughs> He didn't elaborate. Then it was sort of re-asked in a different way. And, and, and he went, you know, it's easy to look back and say, oh, yeah, well, we're the best. We kept him here. But He doesn't have to say that, but I think it's worth pointing out that there were definitely members of the Canadians organization who were, who were at least contemplating the idea, like, are we doing more bad than good here? Should we send him to Laval, let him get his confidence back, like they did with Arbor Jackai, like they've done with Justin Barron now? There were definitely conversations to that effect, and it's it's hard. I, I believe Martin went to bat. To say no, I want to keep this guy here. Let me work with him. I'm I'm doing something with him. I need to complete that. I know he's going through a rough patch, but I need to complete that work. And you know the extent to which Yuri Slavkovsky has been receptive is a big part of it. But Marte's ability to communicate to young players uh, is really been you know two years into his coaching tenure with the Canadians is really his strength is really something that is makes him a perfect fit for the Canadians right now is his ability individually with players to communicate ideas, concepts, 
situational decision-making, all sorts of things that he does in the video room uh, that really resonate with these guys. And every conversation I have with, with any player asking about their one-on-one -on -one work with Martin, it's, it's just effusive praise, like over the top praise. I talked yeah. about it with Jaden Struble this morning, just this morning. And his, his, his eyes, like his, he let out a megawatt smile. As soon as I asked the question, like, what has it been like sitting in video sessions with Martin St. Louis? Just like, he's blown away by it. Like he just, he can't, he can't. And, and so this is, you know, two years in, there's a lot of good that Martin's done, but I really think on an individual level, working with individual players and, and, and really creating tailor-made programs for these players um, has been and will continue to be his biggest strength as more and more of these young players arrive and need to make the transition into the NHL. And, and hopefully, for the Canadians' sake, have it go just as smoothly as it's gone for your Slavkovsky, despite the bumps in the road that, that happened. It's right now, he's on a, he's on a very very steep climb in terms of his progression. You know, uh, we, we often hear Martin Saint-Louis say, I don't know. You know, when yeah. we ask questions at certain aspects and the, I don't know may suggest to certain people who will listen to him, think that he, mm. he doesn't know or he doesn't have a clue, but it's more like there are so many, possibilities during the game so many potential situations that which one of this this myriad of possibilities with it going to be in that precise situation you cannot tell in advance so there's a lot of i don't knows in how we explain things but he does he understands how to d like diminish the, the number of possibilities or to to Uh, increase them depending if you're defending or you're or, or you're attacking. But he's, I guess my 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 point with that is that he's he's letting his players play with an open canvas. When he says I don't know to them, it's not he's not rigid and this is what I want. You have to do it this way, this way, this way, that way. He trusts them to say, read the play, use your brain because what's mm -hmm. out there. Sometimes I cannot tell you in advance what it's going to be. I don't know. You'll you'll see for yourself. Yeah. But I was I was talking to Mike Matheson about this this morning, and he said it's so good, it's so comforting for a player to receive that level of trust, where you don't have to always be um, operating under a very tight system of play. You're not being coached by a dictator. He uh -huh. just tells you. You go, guys. You trust your instincts, and it's funny because when you say when you were saying earlier about um, Slavkovsky, let me work with the guy. I thought of Star Wars. Let me complete his Jedi training. Yes, so, exactly. And that's what and that's what it is. You know, exactly. And that's what he does with yeah. his young Jedi. It's like use your instincts. So, yeah. so when he says, "I don't know," just. People don't take this the wrong way. It's not. It's not that he doesn't know. Or he doesn't have a clue. It's because there's there's an infinite number of combinations and possibilities out there during the game. That for each situation, it's up to the players to under to recognize which possibility it is 
and what to do about it. And, and so it, there's a liberty about it that the players love. Yeah, and <clears throat> there's another kind of I don't know, which uh, involves his total unwillingness to put a player's in a box. Like whenever he's asked, <clears throat> excuse me, whenever he's asked a forward-thinking question or a forward-looking question on a play, he was just, it was just Thursday morning. Uh, I believe Eric Engels asked him about uh, Slavkovsky's, you know, how how Marty's always talked about his own ability to improve throughout his career. He asked, where do you put Slavkovsky on that scale of, of a willingness to improve? And uh, immediately Marty said, I don't know. Mm. And then Eric said, well, how about so far? Oh, so far it's been great. So it, it's, it's a little thing, but I think that that really gives you an idea of where Marty's mindset is as a coach. Like to him, he was being asked to project something into the future on Slav and, and he wasn't willing to do that. Uh, a, because he, the player hasn't proven that, that he has that in him yet. Uh, Cause Marty was improving well into his thirties as a player. Uh, not everyone does that. I think everyone at 19 in the NHL is going to show a big willingness to improve. But once you've established yourself as a star, once you've won a heart trophy, once you've gone to the Olympics, once you've made all-star teams, are you still going to want to improve? That's the standard for him. And he doesn't know legitimately if this guy, once he reaches those heights, if he ever does, is he still going to be willing to push it further, is still going to be willing to go further? That remains to be seen. So he immediately took it in that way. Yeah. And and, and so not only was it not putting Slavkovsky in a box, it was also legitimately not knowing. What the, how this player is going to react when he reaches a certain, cause to him, the standard is that like it's, you should never stop improving. You should always want to improve. No matter if you're playing in the NHL, you should want to improve. Um, yeah, and any question about ceilings, he, he tends to go that way. Exactly. It's a standard why, answer. Why, why should he verbalize or establish a ceiling where actually You know, progress. The ceiling is limitless. Yeah, limitless. Exactly. This guy is this guy is the limit for everybody. It's just that some people will end up flying not as high as others, but mm -hmm. technically, the sky's the limit for everybody. Uh, yeah. And and first and foremost for him as a player, if if mm -hmm. a coach when he was 21, 22, had been asked what's what's Martin Saint Louis ceiling, it would have nothing, and and such a coach would have you know, dared answer that question, it would have had nothing to do with what he ended up becoming. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, exactly. I, and you put that, now that he's the coach, you put the same logic in his own answers, and it's like, let I won't even get into that. Why would I name what I think he's going to become when there's always the possibility that he might surpass that? So, I won't bother. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And he And he gives that benefit of the doubt to every one of his players, you know, and, and I think we've talked about it before uh, and our listeners are probably kind of sick of hearing it, but the best example of that is Michael Pizzetta. And I think some fans are probably frustrated with the potential that Martin St. Louis sees in Pizzetta's game, but it's sincere. He sincerely sees it. Like it's, it's, I don't yeah. get it either. Like, listen, if there's a guy yeah. who's, who's ceiling, you could comfortably establish it's probably him, but Mark, Marty refuses to do that even with him. He sees something where 
No. Is he ever going to become like a superstar NHL player? Of course not. Is he ever even going to be a top six forward? Of course not. I think everyone involved probably knows that, Michael Pizzetta included. But the fact that he sees more than just an energy guy who can hit and who can fight and who can do those things that you that you traditionally got from a from an energy fourth line winger, that there is some offense there. Every time he's asked about Jake Evans, there's more offense there than you think. He's always he always sees this in guys. Listen, sometimes it's just not there. And and but the fact that he is willing to see it is I feel better than the opposite, where coaches will artificially limit a player or 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 pigeonhole a player into a specific role and you'll you'll be no more than that. Um and we'll never get an opportunity to be more than that. Uh, because of any preconceived notion the coach might have of you. Uh, I'd say Louis doesn't do preconceived notions. <laughs> He's really, he likes to allow, he likes to, to let things play out. He said it with Newhook when he arrived. He said it with Kirby Doc when he arrived. It's like, I didn't watch video on them in both cases. Did not watch video from last season. I want to see how they do here and, and build my own impressions based on what I see in front of me. And, that's not only a rare thing for a coach, but it is a vitally important thing for a coach in the situation that Martin St. Louis finds himself in on this team where there will be a stream of young players trying to incorporate the lineup and they're going to get, as you mentioned earlier, that blank canvas or that blank slate with this coach and be given a chance to make a true impression on him. And that's, 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 that's a valuable thing for this organization at this point in time. But the fact that he's um He's got such a a leaning towards the hockey sense. That's how he that's how he played. That's how he views hockey. He's got predisposition for players also who let their hockey sense speak first and foremost. He's 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 built to coach that type of players. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it's it might be somewhat detrimental to the Canadians because at some point where you won't have like 23 hockey brains, like high, very high hockey sense type of guys. You got certain guys that will be more North and South. We've discussed in the past, you know, the, uh, the, the, the hiccups that Josh Henderson has had, you know, yeah. uh, under his teachings, you could throw in the name of Gallagher too. Um, it's, is there a risk? Do you think that he coaches that way? With everybody knowing that what he's looking for, some guys might not have it. Yeah, I do. Like, I think the Josh Anderson example is 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 what I would bring up in the sense that at some point, at some point, you have to accept the fact that a certain player might have limitations, might have, might not be able to grasp certain. But even Josh Anderson, I mean, honestly, he's he he has incorporated elements that Martin has brought up with him into his game pretty seamlessly. But, you know, I, at a certain point he is who he is. And, and, and at another point, if you change, if you change a guy's game enough, you, you might get away from what got him to the NHL in the first place, yeah. you know? And I think in Anderson's case, um, yeah, I think he's kind of dialed it back a little bit, especially after he saw him the way he struggled, Uh, you know, not being able to score 
deep into the season. And, and I believe we were in Minnesota when we talked to Marty about this, um, just his approach with Josh and how once that got deeper and deeper, he kind of pulled back more and more. Like he didn't want to suffocate him, I think was the word he used. So yes, he's coaching him, but in doses, you know, and so it wasn't, and, and so he stopped hammering home these concepts and the work he was doing literally on a weekly basis last season. I mean, Josh Anderson said once a week, he had a one-on-one video session with Martin St. Louis and who knows how many players could say the same thing, but I think a lot of them could. Um, I think this season when he saw what was happening, he, he decided to, to dial it back and sort of let him breathe a little bit. And so, but that's a chicken and egg thing. Like it, it would, would there have been some benefit to kind of seeing, uh, how Josh maybe was having trouble incorporating some of those elements, some of the more East West style and slow, like control your speed is a big thing that he yeah. talks about with Josh. Um, whereas I think Josh feels most effective when he's just going a hundred percent at all times and just using that speed to his advantage, uh, you know, slowing down and, and, and using that speed at appropriate times is something that Martin's really big on. Um, and it's something that I don't feel like, Anderson's really fully grasped. Uh, so, so I think that's, you know, that's, there's areas that Martin can show some growth still. He's only been an NHL coach for two years. Like, I mean, it's, um, and I think that might be, that might be it. Like the, 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 the Yang, the other side of, of that is, is, is actually accepting that certain players have limitations and not trying to constantly, prove that there's more there than there actually is yeah there's he said something interesting yesterday um and i'll i'll read the quote because i thought it was good piece of wisdom he said if he mentioning a player if the player had good intentions and it didn't work out you got to be careful to tell him you can't do that because it was a great read he just didn't execute and later on he added You got to be careful how you coach the intentions because then you're making your players second guess all the time. Yeah. I think, well, I think was, it's very interesting. Yeah. Except what was interesting about that quote is that was a question that I asked regarding Arbor Jackai. And the thing is, is that if there's a player who's second guessing himself all the time right now, it's Arbor Jackai. And mm -hmm. so Like he said that in reference and, you know, he made, he, he, he followed that up with an analogy. Like, you know, the question was basically like when Jack is the physical nature of Jack Eye's game is one of his prime selling points and he has to live on the edge. You know, he, Martin mentioned, I, this, I, I asked Martin this, I was like, listen, you said it when Gallagher hit Pellick that when you play on the edge, sometimes you're going to have to go over it. Sometimes you're going to take penalties and sometimes things like that will happen. However, in Jack Eye's case, who also plays on the edge. Um, he took three penalties in two games and he was, he was on the sidelines, you know, he was, he was out of the lineup. And so how do you, how do you correct that without pushing that player so far away from the edge that he ceases to be effective? And I think this is, I think this is an area where, you know, Marty's learning as a coach. I think Jack has actually a great sort of uh, test case for that because clearly the nature of the penalties Jack is taking. And that's what he was talking about with intentions. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to take a penalty if the read is good and you're making the right play, 
you'll live with those penalties. Just, you know, just getting over aggressive or something. But if you're taking foolish penalties, like the first one he took against the Islanders, which was him trying to make a move in the offense, like at the blue line, that was not, not needed. And, you know, he had to scramble. And, and so that quote, you know, he mentioned, okay, well, if I have an offensive player and he's, his identity is making plays and making offensive plays, but he keeps turning the puck over, do I have to just accept that because he's an offensive player? Which is a very fair analogy. Like, you, you can't just say, oh, well, Jack High's physical, so I'm going to have to live with a penalty a game, basically. Yeah. Um, that's, not, that's not true either. But I think he is somewhat navigating that. And, and, and that's, that's maybe a more difficult thing for him to navigate. Like, it's, it's you know, he was a very aggressive player. He found himself in the penalty box a fair bit because he was so competitive and so, you know, he was hard on pucks. He was hard on on, on forecheck. Um, but you talk to Jack Kai now, and he, he's not quite. He doesn't strike me as a guy who seems all that sure of how he should play. You know, so much emphasis is being put on his defensive play, uh, but to him, a big part of his defensive play. Just being a monster and just hitting people, and yeah. and he seems afraid to do that right now because of the potential consequences. And so that's something where you know you gotta you gotta keep guys' identities intact to some extent. You can't you can't try to change everyone. So I think that's something that he's still navigating. I think more experience will probably give him more techniques and more methods to to do that. And and that was kind of behind what I asked him today. Cause I found a cure. Like a, the reason I thought of it is like, okay, well, Ryan Backer's going to be here at some point. Hudson's going to be here at some point. Like the, the, the future of the team is on defense by and large, mm-hmm. you know, how comfortable does he feel coaching defensemen or, or, or instructing defensemen? And he said, I feel very comfortable doing that. You know, it's, it's not, it's not as big of a difference as, as it used to be, you know, the game is changing and, and positions are changing and, and he, he thought his comfort level was very high and, and that's, and that's fine. But, you know, you look at, you look at Jack high and, and what that's, what's happening there. And, and, and maybe the same will be true of, I don't know, Reinbacher at some point or, or, or someone else for, for a different reason, maybe not for the same reason as Jack high, but, um, I find that to be an interesting sort of challenge for a young coach to get this player who's clearly a part of the Canadian's future. I think the organization, I think even the coach sees him as a part of the future, but how he's navigating a bit of the same process that Slap was navigating um, is going to be an interesting test case for how Marty's developing as a coach. Well, I think, yeah, helping a player find his mojo again is is definitely part of you know, a, a, a coach's toolkit or, or actually things that he needs to do, um, mm-hmm. especially young players. But I find that Jack is in a bit of a particular situation in that sense because it, very seldom do you see young players arrive in the league, for, you know, first games at 21 years old, And right from the get-go, he skipped the uh, the American League. He arrives in the HL in the NHL, and right from the get-go, he establishes himself 
as a physical presence, as an intimidating player. And not only does he like he conquers the heart of every Montreal Canadiens fans, but he, he he creates fear in the opponents right from you know right from the beginning. And mm-hmm. this is not from a right rookie. from preseason. This is not something you see every day. You see yeah. guys that will, you know, talented offensive players that will dazzle you and they'll they'll start, you know, they'll they'll you know, they'll they'll storm out of the gate in their first few NHL games. You see that often and then mm-hmm. maybe that they'll go through a, a rougher patch. But for him to arrive in a men's league, all of his 21 years old and and have the impression that he's a kingpin yeah. and You know, all of a sudden, if he's got to de-escalate from that, finding his mojo again is a different story because this is the reality that he's lived last season, and mm-hmm. the persona that he's developed so fast is uh, puts him in the category that honestly, I, I there's there's very few players that have experienced that in the modern hockey. Yeah, no, I agree, and, and I mean it was so fast. It was his fifth NHL game when Arizona came to town last season. That's when he fought Zach Cashin. Mm-hmm. That's the fight as his first official NHL fight. Um, that fight shook him his, like a rag. Shook like him like a rag. rag, and that and that clip went around the league. Like that yeah. established him as something really, really quickly. But you look at I'm looking at his game log right now. Second game took a minor penalty. Third game took a minor penalty. Had four penalty minutes in his fourth game. And then obviously the fight uh, in his fifth game. But, you know, went through stretches. He had a three-game stretch where he took four minors last season. Um, you know, another three-game stretch, a minor in each. Like, this is something that's that's not just from this year. You know, it's something that's no. that's 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 been lingering with this player. And so it's, it's just, it just feels like, uh, it just, it's, it's interesting to me because it, it's, it's clear that the player it's himself to me, at least doesn't seem all that certain of how to best use his strengths. Yeah. What, 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 what opportunities he has to use those strengths. Uh, so he's not, You know, when when he, when Martin said in that quote, like, otherwise they're second-guessing themselves. Well, yeah, Arbor Jack is second-guessing himself a lot <laughs> right now. Yeah. And 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 maybe for the best, you know? Like, I mean, yeah, you can't constantly be putting your team – you can't constantly be in the penalty box. You can't constantly be putting your team on the penalty kill. And he talked about it. Like, when, you know, I asked him, like, what, what compelled you to apologize to the team for taking those two penalties against the Islanders? He's like, well, they were unnecessary or avoidable. And, uh, you know, when I do that, the guys who aren't on the penalty kill are sitting on the bench. The guys who are on the penalty kill are out there blocking shots. They're playing hard minutes because of me. Uh, momentum swings, all sorts of things. Like, I, I put the team in a bad spot, I, and I felt like I should address it. And, and power to them for doing that. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult coaching dossier because there's something that needs to be corrected. However, in order to correct that thing, you have to also maintain what makes that player special. And that's tough. That's going to be very difficult. And that, that project's not finished. And, and there are going to be, as I mentioned, like all sorts of defensemen coming up 
over the next few years um, that Marty's going to have to go through this process with. So, you know, he says he's comfortable working with defensemen. I, I've, and speaking to defensemen about him on the team seems extremely comfortable with them. I mean, again, talked to Struel yeah. today, but I've talked to Gouli in the past. I mean, Edmondson last year, Savard, like every defenseman just talks about him in glowing terms in terms of what he can add to their game. Uh, but these young defensemen entering the NHL like as and, and sort of shaping who they will be in the NHL, that's going to be a big challenge for not only Marty, but the whole coaching staff, but primarily Marty. Yeah. But just to finish on, on Jack guy, um, in today's NHL, the game, I mean, he's lucky because he's big, but he's very mobile for a guy his size. Yeah. But can you That's smart? Can you defend by being first and foremost physical? I mean, the physicality is great. It's part it, it is his identity. But you cannot physicality cannot be your the number one way to defend. No? In today's NHL, it should No, I agree. And I think I think that's the point they're trying to make with him. I mean, it's exactly yeah. what you're saying. That's that's what they're trying to show him is that if you can pick your spots for when to be physical, but it can't be your go-to defense. And he's he's admitted it. Like in the OHL, he would just grab guys and chuck them against the boards. Like that's, that's he's literally said those words. Like you know, and you can't do that in the NHL. The guys are too quick. They're too good. And either you're going to get a penalty or you're going to get beat. So yeah, you know he's he's learning to navigate that. But it's it's. You know, Caden Gooley's navigating the same thing, except he's way more cognizant of it, I think. And he and he has, I guess, more of a backup plan in the sense that he was a nasty physical player in junior. We've talked about it before. Uh, he quickly, very quickly realized that he could not do that at the NHL level until he understood the pace and the rhythm and and the patterns and 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 started to understand his opponents better, getting a book on some of the top players that he'd be facing on a regular basis and knowing what they do, their tendencies. So he's basically his rookie season. He basically fully avoided doing that. And he still largely avoids doing that because, you know, you don't often see Gooley just blow a guy up as they cross the blue line, which he did regularly in junior hockey in the WHL. And I'm sure we will see that at some point, but it just shows, you know, it just shows the difference between players. Like, Uh, Arbor's having a bit more difficulty kind of finding that balance and sort of finding that patience to be like, okay, like this is an element of my game that I know is there. There are other elements of my game that I need to improve in order to show that. Um, and it's, he's having a hard time with it, but he's having a less hard time with it just because I guess that's the difference between the two guys. I mean, one is a really high end, prospect first round pick yeah. and and you know his captain of every team he played on and 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 is is who he is and arbor jack is not that and that's not a knock on arbor jack he's just he's just in a different spot and in terms of his his experience and and what he's what he's lived as a hockey player but it's hard to take the one thing that you in your mind believe made you a marketable hockey player and say i'm going to put that aside for now now that i've reached the nhl like that's tough that's That's why I see him as an interesting test case for yeah. for the way the way Marty's kind of approaches young defensemen and young players in general, I guess, and sort of eases that transition into the NHL. Well, since he's arrived behind the Canadian's bench, he's preached patience a lot, and he's been telling everybody about 
all of his players that it wouldn't necessarily be like a regular uptick and there would be ups and downs and whatnot. But, but he's been preaching patience in the progression of his players and the development of the team in general. Mm -hmm. But I must say, I thought that during this second season, second full season, um, I would sense more the, the frustration of not winning on a more consistent basis. I thought that the, the player in him who was, you know, was living for, for winning uh, would be eaten alive <laughs> by the fact that the team is not winning his fair share, its fair share of games. And I'm, I'm impressed to see that he, you know, it's, it's, he keeps his eyes on the prize and saying, and he sees the, the big picture and doesn't seem too rattled with the fact that this team remains, well, is this season a 500 team. Well, I think he's had moments in both of those full seasons that were humbling to him. And uh, and he's taken a lot from that. Like, listen, you know, earlier this morning on Friday, you know, he was asked about if the pressure of the, the job was more or less than he thought it would be. And he said, I don't feel any pressure. Of course, he doesn't feel any pressure. The team has no expectations. You know, no one expects the team to do anything except for him. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, heading into the Christmas break last year or heading into the Christmas schedule last year was a point where Marty felt supremely confident about how his team was playing. Uh, and then they went into a tailspin and it caught him a bit off guard and he had to do a reset and, and work on the defensive zone play and everything. And he said he learned a lesson there he, he to start taking things for granted because they were winning earlier this season. Same thing. Team was winning. Started coaching for results. Started coaching for results, and he admitted as much. And he said, I, "I got caught in a trap. We were winning games, and I started to take that. Uh, that started to determine the way we were doing things, um, as opposed to the process. And, and maybe I got blinded on, on a certain on a few occasions. So he's had these moments where he has the player in him has taken over, where the player in him." Has, has enjoyed the winning in the spurts yeah. that they've come, you know, and, and it's led to losing. And so he's, he's been put in his place in, in each of those occasions. And so I think that's been valuable for him. And, and, and he's, you know, he, he's a big enough man to admit it. You know, there's not many coaches who, first of all, say, I don't know as often as he does or ever, really. Uh, I think that was our, after our first meeting with him. I think the first story we wrote about him was the fact that he's willing to say, I don't know, which yeah. you don't see from NHL coaches. But the other thing is having the humility to admit when he made a mistake or he, he, he lost his way a little bit or he, uh, took things for granted or, 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 or didn't coach the team properly during a stretch. Like he'll admit that. And, um, It's, it's good to not feel like you come in knowing everything. And I think with, I think that might be one of the benefits of his lack of experience. Like, I guess the argument can be made if he had more experience, he would avoid those things to begin with. Uh, but the, his lack of experience allows him to be like, you know what? I don't know everything. I need yeah, to. He's very candid about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's two ways of looking at that. Um, You know, and the reason you get experience at lower levels is so that you don't have to learn those things on the fly at the NHL level. But there's so many other things that he brings to these players that a typical experienced coach 
maybe wouldn't bring that that more than in my mind at least that more than balances itself out benefits outweigh in my opinion uh the the downside of his lack of experience i mean two years behind the montreal bench two years as an nhl coach two years removed from coaching u15 hockey in in connecticut i mean it's 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 really everything's relative here but the question is will will marty's progression as a coach mirror the canadians progression as a franchise and as a team so that he will reach a point where he's ready to coach a winning team and not just be quote unquote i guess a development coach but actually be a coach who goes out and and wins games um at the same time as the canadians players are ready to no longer need a development coach but need a coach that can that can win them games and win playoff series and do these things they're they're kind of on a similar track in that sense and so it'll be interesting to see if they can each reach that point at the same time and who will get there first and and how that goes uh is going to be one of the more interesting things to observe cuz it's it's very true that at some point this team will need more of like a, a tactician you know someone who uh someone who does coach for results because that's what the situation calls for and marty has to well, think, might, has to build himself he must to think, that you must think that he can be the coach to do that too it's just that he'll have to adapt his message uh you know reducing the the margin of error or the or his level of tolerance towards mistakes or towards lack of execution mm-hmm. and be be more demanding on the day to day. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. So it's just at some point you, when you're a better team and you're meant to win now, there's no room for error. Whereas the Canadians right now, there's still room for error. It's just, there's no room for repeating the same mistake over and over. Well, it's, it's one of the Marty isms, right? Is that they, they established a new standard when he talks, when he talks about the team, Uh, you know, the game in Vegas, for instance, which they lost, but he said, you know, we've set a new standard. It's not me who sets the standard. It's the players. He, he, he says that a lot. So the players will progressively set new standards as they go. And he's going to have to set new standards for himself as to how he deals with certain situations. You know, it's, it's how, uh, how he coaches individual players, how he, how, you know, the, the standard of conduct on the team, like, you know, the whole Gallagher taking late penalties, which we'd spent a whole episode talking about. Um, is that, a, does he handle that situation differently if they're on a winning team and, and this veteran player is costing them games late in games by taking unnecessary penalties, oftentimes 200 feet from his own net. Does he get the same benefit of the doubt because he's Brendan Gallagher because he has a letter on his shirt if the team actually needs those points badly, as opposed to now when they're kind of inconsequential, probably it's probably dealt with differently on a winning team than it is right now. Yeah. So that's an adjustment that that'll happen, I guess, organically over time, but we'll have to see if, if that, if that actually happens. Yeah. You look at uh, Rick Tuckett in, in Vancouver earlier this mm-hmm. year, he had some situation with his Canucks where he, He, he showed zero tolerance for certain things that he thought were unacceptable, mm-hmm. but because he saw that his team was a uh, was had an opportunity to win this year, 
And so, you know, after I think they, they had won a game eight to four, something like that. And he went through all the negative things he had seen from his team during that game instead yeah. of celebrating the fact that Elias Peterson had a hat trick or whatever. But he, so, yeah, I think that at some point you adjust your message and you become sharper in your criticism or, or in what you expect from your players just based, just based on the fact that they're in a position to give you more mm-hmm. and being too criti- um, critical, you know, cr- too critical of the current bunch would be a bit pointless because they're, they're giving you pretty much as the best that they can under the circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. As those circumstances change, that standard should change. Yeah. But again, like Marty likes to say, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know how that's. <laughs> we don't know how that's going to go with Marty, and because he's going to have to grow in that same, uh, at the same pace as his team, and as the same pace as the expectations for the team change. Perhaps as soon as, I mean, realistically, not next season. But I know for the Canadians themselves, they would like that standard to change next season, where yeah. losses. Not to say that they're acceptable now, but I think they are. Actually, so it is to say that they're acceptable now, but they, they're acceptable within with to a certain point. Um, I think the franchise would like to see a shift next season where losses uh, become unacceptable and and results become more important. Not over development, but definitely more. They become more important than they are right now. Well, it's based, they want to they want to feel like their development is turning into wins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's so that's that's when we'll see. Um, I will either we will or we won't, but we'll, we'll have to see a shift in Marty's kind of way he handles things when the, once that expectation changes. And so we'll see what kind of off season the Canadians have. But you know, I think that message will be sent largely by what the front office does in the offseason. If they if they try to create a more competitive team, uh, uh, whether it's through trades, free agent signings, what have you, then let's see if that shift happens um, mm-hmm. with Marty as well. well uh, listen. We'll, we'll revisit it exactly on the same date next year. Yes, November exactly. 9th, 2025. Yeah. Let's hope it falls on a Monday or a Friday. <laughs> um, listen, let's go to uh, let's go to Future Friday. It's Friday. Yeah, gotta do the jingle. Yeah, Future Friday, Future Friday, Future Friday, no, Future please, Friday. Please, please, no, <laughs> don't don't start singing. Not you, please. I could have. Anyhow, I had, I had a jingle all in my mind. I rehearsed it. Anyhow, um, <laughs> so today, uh, rather than uh, a Canadian's prospect, we thought we'd look at their their draft pick their first draft pick. And I know in previous episode, we talked about, oh, maybe we'll look at what they could do with that Jets pick. We looked into it and and honestly, like we'd have to go over so many players that might be available in that range, 24 to 32 or whatever. It's, it's just, it's, it's a futile exercise. So if the Canadians pick falls somewhere between six and 10 in the draft, which is its most likely landing spot, um, you know, there's some, there's some players. It could work out favorably for the Canadians just because of how defense heavy the draft is this year. And so we thought we'd look at a few forwards that could be 
enticing. Do you have you had a couple in mind, Marc Antoine? Well, I think that discussing too many of them today would uh, would probably not do them justice. But there were mm. two in particular that that I thought were interesting to discuss. Uh, first and foremost, uh, there would be Ivan Demidov and Caden Lindstrom. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that Demidov, there's a lot. A lot of people will say, well, oh, they didn't draft Mishkov last year, so why would they be interested in Demidov this year? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that it's two different stories completely. The Russian factor when it comes to the Montreal Canadiens, the Russian factor is a part of the puzzle in the sense that there is a risk associated with bringing the player over and whatnot, their whole situation with the war in Ukraine, that's a component that's common also that they to can't, every... they can't see the player live. Exactly. Which is not it's, common it... to every team because some teams have scouts in Russia. So, Yeah, but I mean, also bringing the player over, there's, there, there's an element of unknown right now that, mm -hmm. that makes you... They're not exactly on the, same, on the same scale. You have to take that into consideration. Yeah. But it's not because of that that the Canadians did not draft Mishkov last year. There's also the fact that he was under contract for three years um, with his current team, whereas Demidov's only under contract for one more year. Mm -hmm. So it changes the ball game a little bit. Um, and there's also the also the fact that the players the, there was issues with the the the, the perceived uh, coachability of Mishkov. Whereas Demidov, it doesn't seem like these. It, there's this issue one bit. Mm -hmm. uh, he's he's a dynamic left shot right winger. Uh, he's, it, I don't know exactly where he's going to fall because of yeah the the, the issues with him being Russian, but he's he's a clear cut top 10 pick at this point. Uh, the best junior player, uh, the best junior league player in Russia right now. The he's been tearing the MHL apart. Uh, And I mean, it's it, right now he's on a, I mean, it, during a, a 10 game stretch in early January, he scored 11 goals and 27 points. And now, right now he's in, he's got a 16 game point streak and he's, he's ever been an highlight real guy as Mishkov was last year. So mm -hmm. I think that he's, he's more in consideration to be drafted by the Canadians than Mishkov was last year. Yeah. I would say that's fair. Um, Lindstrom is a guy who, you know, fits what the Canadians see as being vital to playoff success. Um, you know, they looked at Slavkovsky, the frame, just the total package, uh, and said that's that's a guy that, that gets you through the playoffs. It's to use a Mark yeah. Bergevin term. Um, you know, I could see them seeing Lindstrom in, in a similar vein. Uh, Lindstrom's interesting just because of the wide range of evaluations on him. And I think with bigger, I think, I think the NHL scouting community in general is starting to, um, maybe rethink how they see bigger players, uh, understanding that they might need more time. I think the Byfield case in LA was pretty yeah. eye opening for some people. I think a lot of people saw him in his draft year as a can't miss surefire. He's going to be an impact player within two years on your team. Took him longer. Uh, he's, he's, he is that now he's an impact player on the Kings. He's, he's, he's very effective NHL forward. He's, will he ever be a superstar NHL forward? 
maybe, maybe not. It still kind of remains to be seen. But and I'm not comparing Lindstrom to Byfield. It's just that he is a bigger guy, so you do need to take that into account. But it's generally what the Canadians do like. But I think the one thing I want to talk about with this pick, and I'm sorry to get there right away, but we're we're running a little long here. But what's interesting to me is that um, every year fans, media to some extent, clamor for BPA, best player available. Yeah. Don't draft a position, draft BPA. Um, already, we've seen Ken Hughes kind of oddly defensive when mentioning that they used the first overall pick on a forward. He was answering a question, I think it was from Anthony Martino in his, in his mid-season review um, about the need for for forward help and all on his own, basically, Ken Hughes said, well, remember we spent our first round pick a year ago on a forward. And I'm like, okay, no one asked you about this. <laughs> like, no, no one asked you about that. You just brought that up on your own. Uh, so what's interesting to me is that with the way the draft is playing out, it's entirely possible that when the Canadians go up to the stage Assuming they use the pick, and I think you brought up the possibility last episode that maybe they trade that pick for more immediate help, and maybe they do. But it's entirely possible that the BPA, when they get up on stage at the draft at the Sphere, is a defenseman. It's a defenseman. Yeah. So would 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 people still be in favor of BPA under those circumstances? Mm. Like, that's, that's ask yourself honestly. Ask yourself honestly, because I have always been of the mind that yes, BPA. But the the draft being having a shorter timeline between the stage in, in wherever the draft is and your actual lineup, that time has shortened significantly. Yeah. Um, so I feel there has to be a team building aspect to drafting. And so in that sense, it would be, in my mind, silly for the Canadians to go up there and use their first round pick on a, on a defenseman. But if you're going to go say, well, just draft BPA, just draft BPA. Well, how would, how would those people feel if they walked up there and drafted a defenseman? I think they'd lose their minds. I think they'd absolutely go bonkers. And yeah, but what is, what is a, the best player? Honestly, you know, best players, is the sum of all of his skill. Is it how the, the player that best fit, our style, the best fit in our hierarchy, the best player available is, is especially when you, when you compare defensemen versus forwards, it's a little mm -hmm. bit apples and oranges. Well, that's the trick of the draft. I mean, it can't be apples and oranges. You have to, you have to make that evaluation. Right. And so, but my, yeah, but but my, my, my point, my point is what you consider the best player available is always through the lens of your own team. Not just the evaluation, but where where you will fit. Well, that's that's what I'm saying. I agree with you. I don't think that's what everyone says. I think when people refer I think the connotation of best player available is forget your own team. Forget what your mm -hmm. circumstances are. Forget everything. Just evaluate the players as they are in a vacuum. And take the best one. Take the one that you think is the best one. But don't start drafting because you have a hole 
on right defense, for instance, which is, you know, the Canadians openly admitted if, if David Reinbacker were a left shot D, they probably would not have drafted him at number five last year. This made people crazy. Like people, this is, this is a lot, this had a lot to do with the reaction to that pick because I think Ken Hughes saying that gave the impression that they were drafting for positional need. Yeah. Um, my, my argument then and remains so now is that positional need is a factor in determining the best player available. I mean, it's, it's just, it's something that's, that's a reality that you need to take into account. But if you don't believe in positional need being a part of that equation, then you can't be upset if the Canadians draft a defenseman with their first pick. Which means, because I know... Oh my, but you see, imagine that, the Canadians draft number six, let's say, and at six, you've got Levshinov, who's still available, or Dickinson, and... Yeah, or Selayev, or whatever, whoever, two. yeah. <laughs> Selayev would be actually the perfect, because he would be Russian, and he would be a defenseman. <laughs> <laughs> it would just oh, be man. the perfect thing. And so, yeah. but like, I think it's something that people need to get their head around to some extent. Like I personally don't think the Canadians are going to draft a defenseman because I personally think that they take positional need and, and, and organizational depth and, and team building into the decision-making process when they're, when they're at the draft table. And in that sense, taking a defenseman would be ridiculous with their top pick and the way that things are playing out with as many potentially impact defensemen available, they might get a forward that otherwise would not have fallen that far in another year. They, they, they might get the second best forward in the draft for all we know. I mean, it's, it's possible. Sure. Like you yeah. talk about Demidov dropping. I mean, I think all things being equal, if he didn't play in Russia and if he, you know, he would be considered the second best forward in the draft mm -hmm. and he could fall to them realistically because of circumstances and because of the strength on defense uh you know and obviously after Celebrini goes number one we, we could see a run on defense and the Canadians could be sitting there with a chance to draft the second best forward um but if that doesn't happen that way and Dimitrov goes I don't know third or fourth or whatever and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mix uh and they arrive and one of those, you know, Levchinov or someone, one of those top end defensemen are available to them. It's just, it's, it's an interesting dilemma. Like, what do you do? do yeah. You well, that's why, that, that's the reason why I brought up the idea of, of potentially trading that pick because mm -hmm. other teams will say, you know what? We, we think that the best players available are defensemen and we just happen to have a need for defensemen. Yeah. And, and if they, if, in their team building, If they they don't see that using that first round pick on the defenseman is optimal, well, they, there'll be a demand because it might not be a very deep draft, but it's top heavy. So that top, top 10 is that top 10 or so is pretty good. Yeah, but yeah. what's also interesting about this draft is within that top 10, obviously excluding number one, but within that top 10. There's a lot of maneuverability. There's a lot of players that are going to find themselves in different spots on different lists. Um, and so what one team might consider the third best player in the draft, if that player is available at seven, then what's that team willing to give up to get that player? And if, if the Canes have five of their top seven players available at seven 
and they trade down to, I don't know, whatever, 13, 14, like, and, and think that one mm-hmm. of those guys might still be there and we can get a significant piece for now. I could, yeah, it's, uh, I guess it's possible. Well, the, other, but- the other thing, yeah, but the other thing about drafting a defenseman is that it ta- defensemen take longer to establish themselves in the NHL. Everybody knows that. But now in the coming years, you already have a first wave of young defensemen that you're integrating, you know, the Ghoulies, the Jack Eyes, the Struble, Harris. And then you'll have that second wave mm-hmm. with Reinbacker, Hudson, uh, Mayu, and yeah. possibly others. So in a how many in how many years will you have integrated enough of those young players so that the first round pick that you draft this year would be could be added to that group without making it a too young blue line. Yeah. 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 So that it, it might be, it might take four years and maybe that that guy would, you know, could be ready before four years, but he'd be ready if he's included, inserted in a blue line that's got some veteran pre- presence and they're mm-hmm. not playing five guys out of six that have, three years or less of NHL experience, you know? Yeah. So I think that at some point, when we talk about team building, that has to be taken into account. And it's not drafting for need, and it's not best player available either. It's just how are you going to – Where? how is he going to fit? It's how not are where, you going it's to build how. A, is how are you going to build a team? Yeah. That's what it comes down to. And, I mean, I think this, this administration has demonstrated – at the draft so far, that that is a factor for them. But it's then it's it's just it's possible because of that that if they use that pick, which I think is we could both we both agree that is is more likely that they will use it to draft a player than they would to trade it away. Yeah. Um, it's possible that they won't draft the best player available. And Maybe there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's kind of because if that best player can't be at his best in your organization, like all these people who say, well, just draft him and then trade him. It no, makes no, 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 makes no, no, no sense no. to me. Like it's just, it just no. doesn't make any sense. Like it's not, that's not a, you, you have to a, trade him. You have to drive you have to draft that defenseman. If you think that he's going to be better than all of the other exactly. defensemen you already have. Yeah. If you say if you think you you look at your group of defensemen saying, "Oh, well, we got numbers, we got quantity, but how many of them are true first pairing defensemen?" Yeah. And and if they if the number is below 2, then maybe okay, fine. You and you've identified a guy that's a short shot first pairing defenseman in your projections, then that's understandable. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's not they they have a perception that David Runbacker is a first pairing defenseman. Uh, it's not a short. He's not a short shot first pairing defenseman. Who knows? We'll see. Same for Hudson. Same for pretty much all of them. Mm-hmm. But it's they, they've. It cannot be just one more guy that can be a top four top four defenseman because they've got a shit ton of them. Yeah, it's, it has to be. It has to be a first pairing defenseman, and that's where when we talk about a draft that's defenseman heavy. Uh, There seems to be an interesting number of guys in that range that could be uh, 
that could be potential for sparing defensemen. So it's gonna it's gonna be quite the I just uh, quite a conundrum. I just I look forward to a third year in a row covering a draft amid a meltdown from the fan base because they drafted a defenseman. And listen, to be clear, this is not based on any intel that I have gathered. Mark Antoine has gathered. This is just a possibility that we're we're kind of spitballing because um, it seems relevant. You know, I mean, it's it's it just seems like this is a situation that could present itself. Um, so, you know, it's 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 worth discussing because I find it to be an interesting dilemma. You know, it's it's like it's do you take a defenseman because he's best player available? Or do you take the player that you think best fits into your organization and fits into a plan that you have to build a competitive Stanley Cup winning team? Yeah. Or do you take a little bit of both? That's which is what I think they try to do is take a little bit of take a little bit of both, but definitely have the team context in mind um, at the draft table. Well, there's when you look at the way that they've gone about their rebuild for now, they've tried to find ways to accelerate things. It's not just filling up the cupboards with a bunch of 18-year-olds. Uh, so they've, you know, in the with the doc trade, with the New York trade, it's, it's, it's things that accelerate the process. If you draft Caden Lindstrom, or if you draft Demidoff, or if you draft maybe Cole Eiserman, Mm-hmm. Uh, that one of those top forwards, you can insert them in your forward group, and it's not going to slow down anything. But I think that if you add one more defenseman, it's not exactly. I don't see the the the, the use that it's going to have in making this team better. I know you draft for five to ten years down the road, but if there's a motivation. In making this team better in the in the medium term rather than just the long term, this there there might be different uses for that draft pick without just saying, "Well, we draft more another defenseman, and we'll see at what year he'll be able to join our team." It's uh this is a component that 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 strategy is there's a component to it that that uh, that's imp- impacted by how fast they want to get to where they want to go. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. So that's, that's future Friday without a jingle. Um, <laughs> thanks everyone for listening. Uh, obviously a big weekend ahead. Uh, we'll be talking to you again on Monday after the uh, Super Bowl matinees are finished. Um, but otherwise enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Who you got in the Super Bowl, Mark Antoine? The Rough Riders. I don't care. I'll say the Chiefs. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know anything stick about with them. the Rough Riders. Stick with the Rough Riders. That was such a good pick. All right. Yeah. I don't I, I don't know anything about football. I got the Niners. I've decided I don't like the Chiefs anymore, and, and I'm sick of them. So I got the Niners. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. And uh, if you are on Apple Podcasts right now or on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and hit the uh, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts if you can. We'll talk to you on Monday. <laughs>